What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game, often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Guys, real quick before we begin, just want to ask you a quick favor. If you can, please stop what you're doing and leave a review for the podcast. Whatever platform you're listening in on, if you can give us a five star or whatever the highest rating is, it would be fantastic. And even better, if you found it useful in any way, please write that down on a very brief review if that's possible. It makes such a difference to how the podcast is received out there and pushed out on various platforms. That's all. Nothing else to ask. Now let's get on with the show. What if I told you that property investment has the potential to completely destroy lives? Would you sit up and pay attention if I did? Picture the scene. It's 2008 and I am taking a dip in this lovely swimming pool in my brand new villa in Spain. I've just relocated to Spain, you know, the sunny south of Spain. Um, and I've, after signing a big, huge um, 40 million euro commercial property deal. And at the time I believed this deal was gonna make me literally tens of millions. Um, what have I told you that just three years later, I would be staring at a personal net worth statement that had a, a negative 15 million value on it. And that the banks were in the process of forcing me to sell my family home and that my marriage had just come to an end. Would you be so enthusiastic to enter into the exciting world of property investment? Maybe not. Welcome back, guys. Listen, it's this is not supposed to be some sort of depression session. The last couple of episodes, I have been focusing on my, my first deals, the first couple of deals I did. I've been focusing on my best deals, where I made the most amount of money in the shortest period of time. And this week, to balance it all out, I'm going to be diving into two of my worst deals that just absolutely cost me a fortune. And uh, the purpose of this particular episode is twofold. A, I want to provide some balance. Um, I don't want it all to look like it's, you know, first of all, I don't want to look like I'm flexing about all the money that I made in, in certain deals. But second of all, um, you know, talking about these incredible deals where you make like a 30x return on your investment in the space of two months, like those deals have to be tempered with the reality that you know some deals you lose all of your capital and this is the thing that you know you got to be careful of having a kind of a a way of dealing with investments that is binary it's you know if it's an all win or all loss situation then it's a pretty bad deal and you haven't mitigated the risk very very well um, if it goes well for you and you double your money you feel great but if you haven't experienced the loss of all of your money then it's a very, very one-sided thing. So that is one of the reasons I didn't want to give a false impression here. I wanted to make sure that you're fully aware of both sides of the, uh, of the risk dynamic. And um, real estate, you know, what, property, whatever you want to call it, it's an asset class that is suited to leverage. And this means that it, it 
works best when you use debt to buy it. And debt, you know, being a bank loan or a mortgage, leverage being the strategy that you use in order to magnify or amplify the amount of capital that you can put into a certain deal. Now, for example, if I had, say, 100,000 to invest and I bought a house worth 100,000, then there would be no debt involved and so there's no leverage involved. And if that house goes up, we'll say we hold the house for five years and let's say the value of the home increases by 20% during that period of time. So the value has gone from 100,000 to 120,000 over a five-year period. You've made 20,000 uh, return. And uh, like, obviously you could have rented it out so you might have made extra and stuff, but just looking at the price you paid versus the price it's now worth, that's a 20,000 profit. So it's gone up by 20%. Now let's say you took the exact same 100,000 that you had to invest and you bought a 500,000 uh, euro house with the help of, say, a mortgage of 400,000. Now that would be an 80% loan to value to get a 400,000 loan against your 100 to buy 500,000 house. So what you're looking at now is a 5x leverage on your 100 grand. And so if that same you know, market lifts the value of that house by 20%, the 500 has gone up by 20% and it's now worth 600. And if that property, if you sell that property, you're gonna sell it and you're gonna get back, you're gonna pay back the mortgage, 400,000, and you're gonna have 200 grand profit, your original 100 and the 100,000 of profit you've made. So now, instead of it being a 20,000 euro profit, you've made a 100,000 profit. So you've effectively doubled your money. And that is, you know, that's one of the huge benefits of leverage is that a 5x leverage means that you're going to basically double your money on a 20% return. Now, this is why property is often seen as this really, really attractive asset class, because debt is usually quite easy to secure against a property asset, not always so easy to secure against other assets. And in a rising market, uh, real estate as an investment uh, with debt, it's like a money-making machine. It can, you know, if, if you're confident the market's going to go up, well, then why wouldn't you leverage to the absolute max? Because all you're doing is magnifying your profits. Now, the problem is, is that there can be circumstances where a deal might fall through or the market turns against you. And often when it does that, it does that with very little warning. Or even if there is warning, a lot of the time, everyone in the market sees this warning at the same time. So you see that the market is turning negative at the same time everyone else sees the market is turning negative. And so there's nobody to sell the asset to. Everyone is sort of like running away from it at the same time. This happens and debt, when it does, debt becomes a weapon of mass destruction. So be careful and pay attention to this particular episode because I'm going to give you, I'm going to outline two deals in which that is exactly what happened and it really, really went quite badly on both. Now, the first deal was a relatively small deal, um, nothing like the larger one I'm going to go into afterwards. And um, But it's a great way of just, you know, com I want to 
show it, I want to describe it because it's a great lesson in setting expectations when you're doing a deal. This was a property I bought in Dublin and uh, I bought it with a business partner. We agreed to buy it. It was a development that had just finished and it was a retail unit on the ground floor. And so it had a street frontage and we basically bought it. We agreed to buy it for 500,000 and we had a, a tenant lined up. We had a, like a, a retail business that we knew and we had worked with before. And we knew that they were interested in this area. So we had the tenant lined up, available to go and move in. And we had already agreed, kind of outline heads of terms as to what the rent would be and all that kind of stuff. So from our point of view, it looked like a bit of a no-brainer. You've got, we're paying 500 for the asset. And the value of the asset when we have the tenant secured already is going to be a lot more than the 500. Now, the first flag I got to go and tell you is don't ever assume anything is a no-brainer that is probably the worst word and in fact myself and my business partner we agreed that we would um, be allowed to beat one another up if uh, if we ever used the term again after the what we experienced in this particular deal so going back we had the tenant lined up and we had agreed an outline agreement of eighty thousand in rent for the year and this was, you know, subject to a formal lease being signed and all that, but, you know, we had more or less heads of terms agreed. And if you were to take a look at the valuation of assets, you would say that the, the gross rent being 80,000, what you would do is typically you'd apply a, a yield to that. And what we did is we took a yield, which was kind of prevailing at the time of around six and a half percent. So a six and a half percent gross yield on an 80,000 rent valued that asset at 1.2 million. So we were buying it for 500,000 and with the tenant ready to move in at the rent we'd already kind of pre-agreed, 1.2 million was the value. So 700,000 of profit potential. Now there was going to be costs, we'd have legal costs and we had some cost of, you know, reconfiguring the unit slightly. So we might've spent 100,000 on all of that. So there was a, but there was a 600,000 profit, essentially, like a 50%. We were basically going to double our money. And uh, we, not even, we weren't even going to double our money. What we were looking at here was doubling the money on the debt, that we're doubling the amount of debt we had taken out. We were going to make double that. We weren't actually putting any money in ourselves. We were putting zero cash in. We were borrowing all of the 500,000 from the bank. Now, in an ideal world, what you would do is you would get the, the tenant to sign the lease before you close the deal uh, to, you know, and pay over the 500000 That is what you would do. Like, that is the sensible thing to do. However, that is in a perfect world. And when somebody is selling you a property, and in this particular case, this, this chap that was sen selling this property to us, he was having absolutely none of it. The delays that we were doing, we were kind of delaying it, saying, yeah, we're nearly there, we'll sign soon. He knew exactly what we were up to. And he said, right, I'm pulling the deal, you're out. Pay me by the end of the week or the deal is off. And so we, we had this kind of like, oh crap, we have to go and you know basically pull the trigger on this. And we don't have the agreement signed with the, with the tenant yet, but we're confident. And that's, that's, where, that's the position we were in. At the time, from our perspective, 
we had the tenant said they were committed. They had a legal team and we had our legal team working on the lease agreement. They had an architect appointed who had designed up the entire store layout, really detailed store layout. I saw the plans and I actually knew the architect. He was a friend of mine from college. And when I spoke to him, he told me he had already met with contractors, uh, fit out contractors for the unit, and they had already been in measuring up and they were even on site bringing materials to the site. So from our perspective, this was a done deal. Like they were actually inside starting to work on the unit. So we closed the sale, purchased the property, 500,000, funded 100% with debt, as I said. Again, a ballsy move. You would not do that without a lease. Um, you certainly, I wouldn't recommend it, but as I've mentioned, we had no choice because the guy just said that he was pulling out. So whilst we figuring out how we were gonna spend our 600,000 profit, solicitor calls me and uh, it's urgently one day and he just sort of says, Gavin, they've just returned the lease contracts unsigned with a letter saying that regretfully they must withdraw from the deal. Um, now, turns out another property just a, a few doors down had entered into a lease agreement with a competitor of theirs. And when they saw this, they basically, all of their financial projections for the performance of the store changed. And all of a sudden, they weren't so bullish on the location. And they certainly weren't so bullish on the idea of paying 80,000 a year in rent. And so panic stations, as you can imagine, uh, we, you know, a lot of calls trying to get them get the deal back on, restart the deal, you know, let's readjust, maybe we can reduce the rent, all this kind of stuff, to no avail. Then we decided for the different option of threatening legal action, which of course you don't want to do because these are guys that we might want to work with in other locations and other deals and stuff, but we kind of felt like our back was against the wall here. We had bought the unit now and these guys were now pulling out. So threatened legal action, spoke to the solicitors, they said, listen, you've gotten no case like these guys they hadn't signed a lease and therefore you know there's nothing for you to sue the fact that they had been in fitting out the unit and architects and all that didn't mean anything so i could spend the rest of this episode literally telling you all of the things we did to try to find other tenants we tried we went and applied for planning permission for different uses uh, like we went on and on and on trying tried everything to create the extra value like to find a, a different tenant re replace the original tenant with another tenant paying a similar amount of rent find another tenant then we couldn't find another tenant we'd say okay let's go and go for planning permission to change the use to restaurant use did that found a tenant didn't last didn't work out very well so long and short of it let's cut to the chase 12 years later we exited from that deal and it was a loss making <laughs> exit. What we ended up having to do, we could not sell it. We could not find a tenant. We couldn't do anything. The place sat empty for effectively 12 years. And in the end, we gave the property to Allsops to put up in one of their massive auctions where they were selling off like a thousand properties in a day. And we put a reserve price of 80,000 on the unit. And in the auction, it sold for 135,000. And so 
crystallizing more than 350,000 of a loss for myself and my business partner. But not just that, no rental income for the entire 12 year period. We were paying interest over that 12 year period. So it cost us an awful lot more than 350. And also the professional costs, architects, engineers, all these different guys brought in and paid for to kind of reconfigure the unit whenever we were looking at the different options. All of this cost us probably closer to 500,000. And don't forget that the 350 loss that we took, that just crystallized the loss. We actually had borrowed the 350 from the bank. So the bank were coming after us for all of that as well. What are the lessons from that particular deal before I go into the bigger one? Number one, <laughs> never, ever, ever, ever call a deal a no-brainer, all right? Um, myself and Andrew, I'm giving away his name, myself and my business partner, we basically said afterwards, like, if I ever hear the word no-brainer again, I'm going to run a mile. Number, uh, rule number two, or, or lesson number two, never assume a deal is done until the actual agreement is in your hand with the signature on the page, okay? That is the only time that you should assume that the deal is a done deal. Just because the architect is looking at it or just because the builder has, you know, started to move stuff onto the site, until that lease is signed, there is no lease, there is no deal, and be very, very careful to jump to that conclusion. Just, I mean, the actions that they took all seemed very reasonable and stuff like that. But in terms of your risk mitigation, you're still 100% at risk until that lease is signed. And then lesson number three, and this is one that in retrospect, you know, uh, we were pretty lax about and, and we didn't really think this thing through. But I think what happened in this case is the money was basically um, causing us to kind of lose focus. When you think you're going to make 700 grand just by somebody signing an agreement, it can, you know, can judge, you know, color your judgment, let's just say. And so I would say always consider your exit strategy and do not let those, you know, do not let the appearance of this big profit to cloud your judgment. This was, this location that we bought was a rough area. It was an area that I, I, I invested in against my better judgment. It has all sorts of social issues. It's the kind of area that you wouldn't walk at in late at night. And um, because of that, it was always going to have, I think it was always going to be a struggle to sell that property. Um, now, at the time when we were looking at it, we were thinking about selling this property with you know 80,000 a year in rent we would get an absolute full value. We would get like the full investment value. And that was assuming the six and a half percent gross yield. It sounded realistic because other people were paying that in, a, in the kind of vicinity, we'll say. But in retrospect, I think because of the social issues of the area and stuff like that, I think probably a more realistic yield might have been, you know, eight, 10, maybe even 12%. And had it been, you know, that would certainly be closer to the mark in retrospect, had it been a 12% yield, had I punched in 12%, that would have meant that this deal was just about profitable. And it might not have been quite, it would certainly would not have appeared like the no brainer right at the outset. And I don't think I would have proceeded to buy it without the lease signed. Um, 
if it had been a 12% yield that I was using. But when it was a 6.5% yield, and when the guy sort of threatened to pull the deal, rather than thinking, okay, we're going to lose out on a potential opportunity, I was thinking, this man is going to take my 700,000 profit. That was the kind of the mindset. So be very careful to make those kind of jumps to the outcome rather than looking at the process. Anyway, painful lesson, but nothing compared to the next one. The next one, I'm going to take you to Spain. And I'm going to go back to 2006. I had a lovely holiday apartment in Spain. And I would travel down to the south on a regular basis, like literally every month I'd be down. And the, my apartment was fronting the marina of this big port area. And it had its, my apartment actually was, it's a ground floor apartment. It had a lovely garden and it had its own swimming pool as well. And uh, this was a really special place. And behind the building, behind my apartment building, there was this huge big piece of land. And I was wondering like, what is eventually going to be built there? Of course, because my, my rear apartment window was looking out on this. So I made some inquiries and uh, it turned out that it was a big mixed use development. It was going to be a residential and retail and it was going to be a big promenade retail. And retail was the area that I kind of thought, hmm, that, that's kind of my area. I'm really, I know my way around retail. I know how these deals work and all that kind of stuff. So I walked the land with the person who was selling it and I just had this incredible vision of what it could be and it kind of appeared to me like looking around i can imagine this is the i suppose the the, the curse and the blessing of being an architect uh, by training is that i have the ability to kind of envision what could be there in the future in terms of something built and i could see it all i was saying oh my god this is going to be amazing this is going to be big long you know promenade of shops on one side you know big yachts moored up against the the dock on the other side and you're just walking along this like beautiful promenade and i just thought wow this is going to make the most spectacular luxury fashion location and it's going to be filled with a load of brands like louis vuitton ralph lauren gucci all that kind of stuff and so i spoke with the developers and i i sort of said you know this is what i think would really be great here and they were like yeah it's it's a nice idea gavin but we're just going to be selling off these units piecemeal, one by one. And I was saying, but you can't do that. Like, if you sell it off piecemeal, then anybody could come along and do anything. They could, like, some guy could open up a pound shop or whatever. They could open up, like, a tacky restaurant that sells. They could open up anything they want. And these big guys like Gucci and stuff, they're not going to move into a place that lacks that kind of control. You want to control the entire thing and you want to really do a nice job and they were saying listen we think your idea is fantastic but it's not on our agenda and so if you'd like to you know do something like that yourself you're happy you know we're happy to open up and, and give you an option to do that but the ball is in your court so my idea was to take that concept and to promote it to all of the big brands and it took it it required me to go on this big international roadshow to go off and meet i met the the head of retail for ralph lauren i met the head of property uh, international property for gucci i met the head of property for diane von furstenberg 
I met for Louis Vuitton, like all of these huge, huge brands. I was this big deal kind of walking in, meeting these guys, talking up this concept that I had for the south of Spain. And it was to build this big destination. And uh, the issue I had is like, I completely had fallen head over heels in love with this concept. I got completely emotionally tied up in the success of this deal. And let's be honest, I mean, if I'm completely honest, my own ego was completely tied up in this. Like I was imagining myself as being this kind of celebrity guy down locally, like the guy with the big shopping center who had this amazing vision. And uh, I saw myself as this kind of like renowned business person who saw this amazing thing and created it from scratch. Now, you know, retrospect is a great thing, but at the time that was the thing that was kind of, uh, we'll say, caressing my ego. And so the numbers were also were very big. And this was a really, this was pushing me outside of my comfort zone in a big way. The, I, I, I had to do, in order to take the option, the, the developers gave me this option to go and proceed with my, with my concept, but I needed time to see what was the feasibility of it. So I paid 600,000 euro and I paid that over as an option payment. And it was paid over in a kind of convertible way. So I was paying 600 for an option, but if worse came to worst and I couldn't go ahead with the big, huge concept, I would use 600 grand to buy a unit um, in the development, you know, just a single unit or whatever. And I had somebody interested in moving into that. So I thought I had going to cover my downside. Um, this 600,000 bought me three months. And the three months was a period that I was going to go my, do my due diligence and the market feasibility for this particular project. And once all of that kind of checked out, then I would have to go off and I'd have to raise the funds to kind of close the deal. Now, the total price for the entire project was 42 million euro. And the way I structured the funding of that was 12 million of capital, of equity capital from investors and myself, and 30 million of debt from the Royal Bank of Scotland, who were actually active in the Spanish market at the time. Now, I had to go on this big investment roadshow. I mentioned that I went on this international roadshow to find the tenants. I was also doing the same thing to find investors. And so I was flying all over the place. And um, I mean, thinking back on it, it was very glamorous. It felt very glamorous and very kind of, you know, look at this, this is cool. I'm, I'm the big guy kind of flying around and stuff. But you can get kind of intoxicated by that. And you got to be careful to kind of keep your feet in the ground. And, you know, this is just you traveling around. It's new, so it seems very glamorous and stuff like that. But really, you're just trying to fulfill a function that nowadays you'd be able to do an awful lot of that online, in, if I'm realistic about it. So at one stage, I was uh, courting this U.S. pharmaceutical billionaire, and they were interested he was a guy, he was a philanthropist who had this, um, uh, they, they had the hospitals that treated people for cancer and stuff like that. And uh, very interested. And I went down this road with these guys, the idea being that they were going to be the one investor that went into this big deal. Uh, in the end, something, they were investing in a, in a fund somewhere. And that fund had gone wallop. 
and it, it had been a 100% loss that they suffered in that particular investment. And this made them completely reevaluate all of their investments. And so they basically, just like that, pulled out of the deal. Sorry, Gavin, we're not going ahead with that. Now, I had, I had wasted a couple of months sort of with these guys. So it was very, very frustrating, but also it's very perturbing and, and uh, disturbing for the project itself because you think you have your investment funding sorted. And again, it's these assumptions, like these guys seemed really interested and so we're going down this road. Nothing is signed until it's signed. Suddenly you're on the back foot, you're trying to find another investor. And it's not a small investment amount. 12 million I had to raise. Now in the end, 3 million came from myself for a 25% stake, 9 million came from investors. And in the end, I found local investors were the easiest to convince. And so I went and I raised the 9 million from investors that um, some of them I knew and some of them I had met through uh, intermediaries. Now the project, I have to be honest, got off to a rocky start. I signed the agreement to purchase the entire center um, it wasn't going to be ready for another while because it was still under construction, but the actual agreement to buy the place was signed the same week that Lehman Brothers collapsed. And so off to a very, very rocky start. All of the markets, financial markets around the world started to, if not completely collapse, they all started to suffer and they started to implode. And what happened then, it was this like domino effect and this knock-on impact. All of the big luxury brands that I was in talks with, they all started to fall over like dominoes. And once one pulled out, another would, would pull out shortly afterwards. And that is because most, when you're doing a destination location like this, there's these things called adjacencies or dependencies. And if Louis Vuitton or somebody like that is moving into a project, they will move in on the basis that Gucci and Ralph Lauren or somebody else is also moving in. They won't move in on their own. And so once somebody else falls out, then it has this knock-on impact. It's others as, oh, if he's out, then we're out too. And if that person is out, then we're also out. And it just went on like that. Within four months, every single tenant I had spent months assembling had pulled out. And so I now had this amazing 500 meter long waterfront retail center with 42 units and not a single tenant for any one of them. And to make matters worse, I had moved my entire family to Spain so that I could put all of my attention into pulling this deal together because it was such a big deal and required so much attention. I didn't want to be living in Ireland and trying to kind of manage everything from there. So I felt like I needed to move my center of attention there. And so what that did was it meant all my projects back in Ireland also began to suffer. And so I, I basically had an insufficient bandwidth to deal with this kind of an emergency, this kind of crisis. The, the Royal Bank of Scotland, they withdrew their funding facility in, with, the, with the banking crisis. And so I decided I better go and look for alternative funding. And so I started flying to Dubai because at the time, most of the traditional banks and all that, they were all just all out of business and you weren't finding investors. But if you went to the somewhere like, you know, Saudi or Dubai or places like that, all of these wealthy Arab kind of investors, they were there 
certainly the perception was that they were there with loads and loads of money. And so I started spending weeks at a time abroad in Dubai trying to recruit these investors. And the idea was bring in enough investors to completely replace the banks and the invest the Irish investors and just replace them completely. And I would be in there running this new development, uh, you know, this whole new shareholders, everybody was going to all be new. And I'd get everybody in the original deal fully back their money. That was what I was trying to do. And it was, I felt it was an urgency because I could kind of sense that the market was imploding. But this, what this meant though, was that I was spending increasingly months and months, I was spending time away from home, overseas, away from my young family. And this was tough on everyone. Like this was tough on me, my health, my mental health, everything started to suffer. But on top of that, it's very, very tough on my wife, now my ex-wife. Um, she was in Spain. She, she, you know, Irish person, moved to Spain for this project that I was working on. And now, rather than being there with her husband and kids, she's there on her own raising the kids. And I'm abroad trying to go and raise money for this project to kind of save the day. And um, obviously put a lot of pressure on the, the marriage and stuff like that. This leads to tension and friction in the relationship. And when that's combined with the extreme stress of having multiple deals all starting to kind of tumble over and fall down, um, buyers are starting to pull out of deals that I've done. You've got tenants that are pulling out of deals that I've done. You've got um, banks starting to pull funding that they've agreed to, to put into deals and other banks chasing me to repay them for loans that they've already given me and investors ringing me every day for an update is just too much. Now, back home in Ireland, the bank pulled their loan on my family home. And so what actually had happened is because we moved to Spain, the move to Spain was always supposed to be temporary because the kids were going to be going to school in, in, um, in, back in Ireland when they reached 12 years of age or whatever, senior school. And um, what the banks did is they used our move to Spain to suggest that the house in Dublin was now a second home. And in the end, they forced the sale of what was our family home and was intended to remain our family home. Um, now, if your wife is angry at you for being away a lot and you know traveling all the time when she's at, you know, trying to manage things, try adding the loss of your beautiful family home into the mix. All, all too much. And the marriage ended. And to say that, that this, this deal in Spain almost broke me is, you know, is a bit of an understatement. The extreme stress that I cannot, I cannot overstate how stressful this period of time was. And extreme stress can do an awful lot of things to the body and the mind. And I, like, I do know a number of people um, that didn't survive this kind of stress. Some of them had heart attacks, things like that, but the vast majority of people I know that didn't survive this, they, 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 they took their own lives because of the stress and everything like that. And I've had a couple of friends, you know, ask me quietly when we're having a drink or something like that, did I resort to therapy or counseling or any of that kind of stuff um, to, to help me kind of deal with all of that? And the honest answer is no. And 
I think, you know, there was, there were some pretty dark moments, I have to be honest. Um, but I do think I have a kind of a, a mental strength. And I think possibly what created that mental strength was my seeing my father dying, first of all, at a young age, um, that, that gave me a certain amount of mental strength. But then a couple of years later, my, my father's brother, uh, my uncle, he actually took his own life. And I had been the person that the um, police contacted. And I had to inform his widow uh, of the events of that day. And that was the most difficult thing that I've ever had to do. And when you've experienced uh, suicide that close and seen the impact and stuff like that, it, it makes a very, very deep impression on you. And it is one of the reasons why I started this podcast is to try to help people not get themselves into this kind of extreme stress, to, to keep your eyes open, be aware of what is possible, what can go wrong. Just if you have your eyes open, you can be prepared and perhaps you don't push that little bit extra to get a deal over the line if there's a risk that it could fall over and you could end up in this kind of extreme stress. Now, um, I had the sense, one of the things that really helped me, apart from you know those previous experiences, one of the things that really, really helped was I had this sort of daily regime of exercise. And you know those of you who are listening for a while, you know, I like, I'm into my exercise, I keep fit. And, um, and that is one of the reasons why I keep fit is because that saved my life, certainly in, in my opinion, going through that extreme stress, it really did help that every morning starts with a run or some extreme exercise. And that really just, that physical health really actually helps the mental health because you finish a workout and you have the endorphins flowing through the body. So no matter how much stress you're feeling, you still feel like you're winning your day because of that uh, start to the morning. So look, let's fast forward. How did it all finish out? Well, I, I have to be honest, I spent about a decade trying to you know, salvage the deal, trying to save the deal, try to resurrect the deal. And um, in the end, I'm sorry to say that the Spanish commercial courts eventually made a judgment that the property was to be taken from me, uh, from the investors and myself, and handed back to the original developer who had not been fully paid at the time because of, of the markets and stuff. And so 100% um, loss of the 12 million capital that we put in. 9 million of it, my investors funding, 3 million of it, my own cash. Um, but what's worse than that i mean obviously i feel bad about losing investors money and things like that but the worst thing was the collateral damage that it had um, all of the years being tied up in this particular deal when there were so many other opportunities like when the market collapsed you could buy things for nothing and rather than being able to avail of those ultra low prices i was too busy trying to fix this problem that i had Obviously, a lot of missed opportunities. The collapse of my marriage, big regret over that. Being away from my children, like my children were very young at the time and I spent months away uh, trying to get this investment. And it was just, 
you know, if it had pull, if I had pulled it off, maybe I'd be looking back saying it was worth it. But the fact that it all went pear-shaped in the end anyway meant that all of that sacrifice had been for nothing. And so that is particularly painful when you think about it. So what are the lessons before I finish up this particular episode? Number one, never allow your ego and your emotion to rule your decision-making. You've got to remain rational and you've got to just remove the emotion and any kind of ego. That kind of ego stroking, oh, I'm going to be this, you know, local kind of hero, blah, 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 just colors your judgment. It's not, it's, you have to completely remove that kind of outcome from your thinking. Number two, never allow yourself to be spread so thin across so many deals and in particular so many jurisdictions. In this case, I had so many projects back home in Ireland and I had this major project here in, in Spain at the time. And like it's hard enough managing a crisis with like one big deal. It's hard enough to manage one big deal in a crisis. But try having multiple deals and then try having to go, jump on a plane every time you need to deal with a matter or something like that. Just made it impossible. Uh, lesson number three, this is kind of an analogy, but never paint yourself into the corner. Like, do not get yourself into a commitment that requires everything to work in order for you to survive. Uh, in retrospect, when I think about this particular deal, this was a deal with a binary outcome. It was, you know, a binary being a zero and a one. It's either a total loss or it's a win. And there's no in-between. And that is binary in outcome. So if this deal all went well and I made, you know, millions, great. But I never really looked at the downside. And the downside was 100% loss. And that is a binary loss. You're not talking about, uh, you know, a partial reduction in value or something like that. You're talking about 100% loss of your capital if it doesn't go well. Um, what did I do wrong? The fourth lesson, I guess, you have to understand and know your skills and your talents and things like that. In my case, I completely overestimated my talents and my skills and I completely underestimated the complexity and the difficulty level of this particular project. I mean, it's one thing having to kind of find all the tenants and stuff, which was new, but I also had to promote the deal to investors, to raise the money. I had to go and create international structure, ownership, legal agreements in Spain. Like everything was new. It was, it was like a huge jump. I mean, I was jumping from deals that were much, much smaller to this huge deal. But instead of it being a huge deal in a, in a jurisdiction I was familiar with, it was a huge deal in a completely different jurisdiction. So I was way out of my depth and I had too much confidence and um, ego probably was a big part of the issue. Cost me dearly. Thankfully, 15 years on now, 2008 is 15 years ago, I'm happily married, second, second time around. Um, hopefully it works out better this time, I'm sure it will. My wife is uh, wonderful. And we have two kids and my three older kids from my first marriage, uh, they are now the most adoring older sisters to my two younger kids. And it's just lovely to see that. And it's very special to me. And all my five kids are part of my life. Professionally, I've survived and I've lived to tell this tale, which I think makes for a pretty good story. 
and certainly I get invited to a lot of podcasts to tell this particular story at times. Um, real estate, thing to remember, real estate, it is an exciting and a dynamic industry. And I still love it, despite that stress and that cost of all of that stuff. I still love this as an industry. It's a fantastic industry. And I would recommend people get into it. But just be cautious. I'm certainly more cautious in my approach today than I was in the past. Um, certainly my approach to debt, my, my assumptions and the things that I, the conclusions I jump to when I'm looking at a potential opportunity. You just, you have to be a little bit more careful and cautious and provided you bring that kind of mental attitude to the deal, you should do okay. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the join my tribe thing over on the right hand side this will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter all of these links are in the show notes below that's all for now i will see you guys in the next episode